This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Uliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind, a podcast about maternal mental health from conception to pregnancy and postpartum. Real stories from moms and family members who have made it from struggling to wellness and interviews with experts and advocates who work for moms and families to get the help they need. We discuss very real struggles that can sometimes be hard to hear, but these are stories that need to be told so that moms and families can know that healing is possible. This podcast is meant to offer information and awareness and is not a replacement for treatment by a professional. Thank you for being with us today. Welcome back to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. I'm so happy to talk with Dr. Julie Fraga today about maternal mental health in the context of Asian cultures. We'll talk about some of the cultural challenges faced by the pregnant and postpartum mothers and how to better support their mental health. Dr. Fraga is a psychologist in San Francisco, where she specializes in maternal mental health concerns. She also co-facilitates a postpartum support group, the Afterglow, at UCSF, as well as a three-week pregnancy support circle, the New Nest. Dr. Fraga is also a freelance health writer, and she's written about women's health concerns for Refinery29, NPR, Courts, Psychology Today, The Huffington Post, and The Washington Post. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Frog. I'm so happy to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So we can get started. I'd love to know about the work that you do and whatever you feel comfortable with sharing about how you got into this specialty, because I know you do so much and you've been doing it for a while. Sure. Thank you so much. So kind of if I go back in time a little bit, even when I was doing like my master's degree in psychology many, many years ago, I always had an interest in women's health concerns. So back in the day, I don't know if they still have these on college campuses, but they had what was called like a women's health and resource center. So Mm -hmm. during my master's degree and my doctoral degree, I worked at the women's health and resource center where I became you know, involved in a lot of women's health topics at the time, mostly topics that pertain to college-aged women. So eating disorders, body image concerns, Mm -hmm. having safe sex, you know, topics that kind of fit around kind of that developmental kind of trajectory. And then after I had my daughter in 2008, I realized that there was this whole kind of group right now of women and mothers that I started interacting with, and I started to learn more about maternal mental health concerns. So it was kind of around that time that I decided to do some specialized training in maternal mental health concerns and kind of re-angle the direction of my private practice. Okay. You were already in practice or working in the field around that time? Yep, I was. Okay, great. And you've been in San Francisco. That's where I met you and know you from. 
and doing really a lot of great work there. Can you say a little bit about the work that you do with UCSF? Yeah, so I have a pretty small two-day-a-week private practice where I see you know, patients, mostly pregnant women and new moms that are coping with postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, career transitions related to motherhood, motherhood identity, exploring mother-daughter kind of dynamics that reemerge during the postpartum period. Um, I do some work with birth trauma and then also some work around kind of you know, the loss of a parent's kind of motherhood loss and how that kind of comes up. So some brief work during pregnancy and new motherhood. And then I also work at UCSF where I do a postpartum support group, the Afterglow with my colleague and co-facilitator, Melissa Whippo, who is a social worker at UCSF. Melissa and I started the group four years ago and we have a group that goes over six weeks and we have a group of women and we you know, explore a range of topics related to the postpartum period during our group. Largely, um, we talk a lot about mood concerns, mm-hmm. partnering, you know, transitioning, I guess, from being partners to becoming parents, mm-hmm. returning to work, and just kind of a lot of the emotional challenges that motherhood brings. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that makes our group unique is that while it is a support group, Melissa and I really try to kind of bring about kind of in a new way of thinking some of the more kind of, I might say kind of in psychology language, more like psychoanalytic topics that we know come up during new motherhood, you know, kind of the presence of the baby as the third and what that means, kind of feelings around motherhood perfection, mm-hmm. fantasies about motherhood and how those do not map, you know, onto the psyche in the same way once always once the baby arrives. So we try to talk about those topics. So we try to make it, you know, a a rich and deep group, even though, you know, we only meet for six weeks for an hour and a half. And in addition to the afterglow, this past year, I also started more of a pregnancy support circle at UCSF Mm -hmm. called the New Nest. That group is much different in that it's more psychoeducational. Uh We talk a lot about kind of mood concerns, kind of what you should look out for. Partners generally come so we can get them on board. Everybody gets a packet you know, what to look for, what's the baby blues after seven to 10 days, you know, if you're having these symptoms, then, you you know, check in for a maternal mental health screening, mm-hmm. talk about how to, you know, bolster support after the baby arrives. And then we do talk a lot about boundaries, because I think that comes up an awful lot right. in new parenthood. That's fantastic. What a great resource, uh, two great resources that are so, so, so needed. And sometimes people don't realize they need them until after the fact. <laughs> so it's great that, you know, you're doing this work. And I, I really hope that, you know, people are understanding how important this is. So in terms of speaking specifically to Asian moms and Asian American moms, and there's a lot of cultures underneath that banner. That, yes, yeah. So, and we won't be able to speak specifically to each a culture and ethnicity underneath that banner, but is there a way we can talk kind of in generalities about what's unique during pregnancy and postpartum for Asian mothers and, and start there? Sure. So certainly I want to start by saying, I mean, I so appreciate you recognizing that kind of Asian and Asian American covers, you know, a large range of um, cultures and ethnicities. And certainly I don't want to speak on behalf of the overall kind of group as a whole, right? Yeah. But, 
you know, what I would say, certainly there are some more kind of just unique pieces, I think, that come up because of the culture. But certainly what I'd advise kind of any practitioner that's um, working with, you know, an Asian or Asian American mother is to keep in mind her own individual background, you know, mm-hmm. by looking at, you know, did she grow up in the United States or is she an immigrant or were her parents immigrants and she's the first generation here in the States kind of taking into account all of those individual threads as well. But if I were to kind of speak about what is a unique aspect for many Asian mothers, I would say oftentimes it's just the cultural configuration of the family. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes in American culture, we have a more kind of individualistic view about family and family building. So that might mean, you know, we think about once, you know, you go off to college and you find a partner and you start to build your own family, you're kind of thinking about things. And when I say this word, I'm not meaning it to mean that somebody selfish is all, but more kind of through a me-centric lens. Yeah. Kind of, you know, what's best for my family and you know, not that you don't take into account kind of your parents and in-laws and other family members kind of opinions, but you do so kind of after the fact in a way. Mm-hmm. So I think what's unique oftentimes for a lot of Asian cultures is the more collectivistic nature of kind of family mm-hmm. and that it's not so kind of me-centric. So it's not just that I'm making a decision for the baby, but it's like I'm making a decision and that's influenced and largely kind of, you know, brought about by maybe what my mother thinks, right? Um, What an aunt, you know, thinks, what kind of elders in my family think. And I'm, you know, thinking about it then as the collective whole, Mm -hmm. a lot of different members kind of working together. Another difference oftentimes is in in American culture, after the birth of the baby, a lot of the focus goes towards the baby. Mm -hmm. In a lot of Asian cultures, um, and not just Asian cultures, other cultures as well, a lot of the focus still remains on the mother. So, you know, there might be, you know, in certain cultures, like a confinement period where the mom due to cultural beliefs isn't supposed to kind of really leave the house for 30 days or her feet aren't supposed to, you know, touch the ground without socks. She's supposed to only have certain types of warm foods, soups that are prepared by mom. And that's just very different, right, than the typical kind of American culture where, you know, after you have a baby, they offer you ice water and they want you to take a shower. All of those kind of components that are embedded into birth culture in America may very well contrast against kind of what someone from, you know, not just an Asian culture, but from another culture kind of um, believes and values. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess in terms of, you know, how long somebody has been here, if they're just newly here or they've been here for a while, they're second, third, fourth generation, that can all vary pretty greatly in terms of how, how they've integrated into the culture here versus how much they're keeping from home and from their elders, which, you know, I think can create its own conflict. Or (laughs) absolutely, because sometimes there's a conflict where, you know, family members are coming maybe from another country right after the birth. And it's in kind of conflict to what the new mother really wants. But Mm -hmm. she doesn't feel, you know, like some of us to say that I really don't want you to come then. Mm -hmm. So, you know, boundaries kind of come up. This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math. 
in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Right. So from the mom's perspective, are there any particular pressures that they're feeling, things that may be unique or specific to them while going through pregnancy and postpartum, things that they are more likely worried about, that kind of stuff? I don't know. I mean, do you mean when you ask that kind of things that they're more likely worried about in relation to kind of their pregnancies or do you mean? What kind of pressures might they be feeling internally in terms of worries about themselves or their babies or or their family, if that's appropriate? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think some of the kind of concerns might kind of map onto more kind of with the difference in how a pregnant woman oftentimes might be treated if she, you know, is not kind of from America or Western culture, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I think that sometimes there's can be feelings of misunderstanding, even around prenatal appointments. Maybe there's certain ways, you know, that she wants to go around her prenatal appointments or put together her birth plan, for example. You know, maybe she wants, you know, her mom or family member to bring in certain soups and she doesn't want to have a shower after she has the baby. Mm -hmm. All of these kind of cultural components that are very important to kind of transition into new motherhood. And yet if a healthcare provider isn't kind of knowledgeable that that's a very important value, not just a preference, I think these women can feel kind of misunderstood and dropped. And I think that can maybe increase risk a little bit for, you know, a mood concern or certainly maybe birth trauma, you know, certainly we know women have a certain kind of sometimes template of how they anticipate their baby will come into the world. And so I could, you know, certainly see that for, you know, Asian and Asian American women, if they have a certain kind of way that they 
want their baby to come into the world. And that really means something kind of culturally as they embark upon new motherhood and the healthcare provider just kind of dismisses it or says, yeah, 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 put that in your birth plan. But then, you know, there's still, that's not been communicated to other team members. They're still offering, you know, like a shower and ice water and doing all of these things that are kind of different from what the the patient requested. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, I'm trying to think in, in terms of like, what are her stressors, what things could contribute to those stress. And just like you were saying, could potentially develop in something more intense or more serious, like a, a birth trauma or depression or anxiety. Yeah, I guess maybe are you asking more, are there are certain kind of things that are unique for Asian and Asian American mothers that might be triggering of a maternal mental health concern that are different from what we might think for kind of women of the Western world. Is that perfect? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So I guess, you know, when we think of that, I certainly think of that cultural piece around the birthing process. Mm -hmm. I also think about the stress, family family dynamic stress, just as there is family dynamic stress kind of with anyone, but I think it's especially can be more complicated or complex Mm -hmm. if it doesn't feel like it's okay to tell your mom, you know, that you don't want her to come or you don't want to, you know, some moms, they like any mother, they're like, well, when I had a baby, we did it this way. And you know, if there's a more collectivistic family structure and mom's like, when I had a baby, you know, I didn't leave the house for 30 days, but then maybe the woman really does want to leave the house. And it's important and vital for her kind of, you know, well-being. And then she feels at a crossroads between kind of receiving mom's advice, but also doing what she kind of feels in, you know, intuitively is good for her kind of well-being. So I think that can kind of be complicating. Also, I think, you know, in some Asian and Asian American cultures, when you kind of encounter, let's say, low milk supply, for example, Mm -hmm. the way to go about that might be more through kind of more indigenous healing, you know, taking some type of herbal remedies, maybe Mm -hmm. going to acupuncture and all of that. So I think if that's not largely kind of received and recommendations are made, kind of, you know, to take, you know, certain medications that can be given here to raise prolactin levels or things that are right. not in line with kind of this more holistic kind of lens, I think that could be triggering as well. Okay. I'm thinking about who's listening, you know, to us have this conversation right now. If there are providers listening, then there are certainly ways that they can be more sensitive and approach their patients or their clients or, you know, even if it's a a, a nurse coming through or somebody, anybody who's working with the mom to really like, it sounds like be, be curious about what the mom's practices are and honor that. Absolutely. And I think it's just best to ask and to not make assumptions, you know, just as you would with anyone. And then really to kind of take what she says to heart, to not try to disabuse so you're not going to disabuse somebody of their cultural values. You know, that's not being sensitive. So I think that's a really important thing because that's something that I definitely have seen where a mother, you know, a pregnant woman communicates something and I've heard her healthcare, you know, some providers, not intentionally, but just might say, well, that's not the way that we do it here, you know? And so there might be certain things that, you know, are vital to one's kind of health that are different, you know, ultrasounds or, you know, getting an IV or something like that, I understand. And that then needs to be kind of explained as that being a piece of medical care that's important for the health of the mom and the baby. But, you know, certain things that one could be flexible on, I think it's wise to receive that and not say something like, yeah, well, that's not the way that we do it here. Or don't worry about that. It won't be a big deal. You won't be thinking about that, you know, after you have your baby or during labor. I think it's all around kind of 
the language that's used and the way the words are conveyed. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Uh, so there's like a lot of potential in that for a mom to feel dismissed or unheard or on some level, not, not being able to advocate for herself or powerless anywhere along those lines on some level. But I, I guess I also wonder in terms of, you know, the doctor patient relationship type of stuff, if, you know, doctors are seen as authority figures and, and how is that relationship perceived? Do you have any sense of, of, of that? I think that that just varies by person, mm-hmm. you know, but I certainly do think that like, in terms of listening to someone and kind of taking their, you know, advice to heart that some, you know, women might agree because they don't feel like they could disagree. Mm -hmm. And that it's important that somebody understands like that just because someone agrees when you take into account their cultural background, that doesn't necessarily mean that they really agree. Uh, Right. You might want to just kind of probe a little bit more or kind of say, you know, does that really feel okay to you? Mm-hmm. and give them permission to disagree. So for moms who, specifically Asian or Asian American moms who are dealing with mental health changes, either in pregnancy or postpartum, what what have you noticed are some of the barriers or difficulties in terms of them getting services and, and mental health support? I guess, you know, I will be honest and I will say I probably don't know exactly all of those barriers, because when I see women in my office or in my group, most of the women are very acculturated, you know, Mm -hmm. so even though, you know, maybe their parents don't see, you know, have certain views of therapy, they're very acculturated. And so they're, you know, making it to a group or they're making it to a therapy appointment. I do know though, that there's some newer research out and I'm, I don't know the kind of reference off the top of my head. I can get that to you later, but that talks for the first time about different types of support for not just Asian and Asian American moms, but other women of color. And what they found is oftentimes, and I'm sure there are so many factors that contribute to this, you know, socioeconomic status, acculturation, lots of different where we're geography. Mm-hmm. But one thing that the study found was that these mothers were much more likely to feel cared for in their communities. So through their churches, Mm-hmm. through more peer support groups and maybe through education or through nurses that came to their house. Yeah. Um, which makes a lot of sense, you know, mm-hmm. in the sense of also more of a collectivistic kind of mindset, certainly like some of these women in the study, it's not that they were particularly religious, but they recognized that when they connected with people at their church in their local community, these people provided exactly the help they needed which was maybe watching the baby um, and giving them a ride to a medical appointment, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, meeting with other moms to, you know, gather to have like a conversation about new motherhood, you know, by way of in the church community versus like at, you know, a new, you know, a new mom center or any of those types of places that other moms might gather. Okay. So. Yeah. That's very helpful. I mean that, right. So, I mean, I'm also very aware that we're still t- talking about a large group of different of, yeah, of women and very, very different cultures. And anyone to say this is how it always is, sure. Know, for everyone, because certainly every person, you know, varies in what they're kind of looking for and with their own individual background. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's absolutely true. And I, I think that you know, one of the big points is to really ask and be curious and and honor whatever it is that the mom is telling you that she needs. 
you know, some, sometimes we don't know what we need and, and that's fine. But for the most part, it seems, you know, that most providers, medical providers, it's a, it's a fast paced environment in, in a doctor's office or in a hospital. It's, you know, not typical for them to sit down and take time. And well, then, keep that top of mind. I think some people, for a lot of people and not just this, you know, Asian and Asian American population, but I think it definitely, what, what was I going to say? I mean, I think that it just kind of doesn't fall at top of mind because, you know, they're, they're not thinking about it. They're busy. And so it's just kind of, you know, gets missed. Right. So in terms of the, you know, pregnancy or postpartum, are there other specific things to, for either providers to be aware about or even moms, Asian or Asian American moms to be aware about in terms of, well, I guess that's two questions. Let me take that. One of the ways that healthcare providers can really be advocates is to make sure that through like hospitals, especially through like social work programs, that make sure that you have a sturdy amount of resources, you know, kind of keeping in mind some of this new, you know, newer research that talks about moms that might connect, don't push therapy if it's something that is so you know, kind of not okay culturally that the woman's never going to go. Maybe she's going to, because I've seen this happen. They, you know, say she says she's going to go, but she has no intention of going. Maybe you need to find a window or a door right. and openings in the community. And that person can then kind of serve as kind of, you know, a step to help the person kind of get there. So I would say, make sure to, you know, work collaboratively with social work departments to make sure you're kept abreast of a lot of community resources. Right. So either culture specific or language specific. Absolutely. And then just also, you know, looking in different neighborhoods, certainly looking at different programs that might offer. And this is probably only going to be in larger cities, but you know, in San Francisco, we have like an infant parent program where a social worker goes to, you know, a family's house once per week and then you know, has a, you know, an appointment with the mom and the baby right in the comfort of her own home. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certain criteria that women meet to kind of, you know, have that service, certainly keeping abreast of different types of support groups and different communities, those types of things. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. And, um, you know, having been in San Francisco myself for a while, I know that there's quite a lot of resources for Asian families more so than there are absolutely in the suburbs or or somewhere else. So city centers are easier, but you know, I mean, not everybody lives there. So there, for people who have to be creative about resources, about getting culture and language specific resources, that's going to be a little bit harder for sure. And certainly in, you know, more less urban areas, right? There are going to be more barriers to access that type of support. And so maybe those are places where you have to look kind of outside of the community. Are there ways to connect kind of through, you know, even online platforms? Mm-hmm. Certainly if somebody's really at risk for, you know, depression or we don't want them to get treatment online, but is there a way to get some added support, you know, in creative ways when you're not living in kind of a urban metropolis? Right. Well, I guess I'm thinking then in those situations, to, well, even in the urban metropolis, would it be beneficial to to bring families in too? It, you know, if you're even a medical provider, would it be useful to, if you suspect or are thinking there's depression or anxiety to request that the family members come in also? I think it depends on a case-by-case basis sometimes. Like I've certainly worked with like some, you know, Asian patients where the mom came to the appointment. But then I've certainly worked with some patients where they didn't want their parents to know they were struggling at all. You know, they didn't want 
to disclose that. So I think that that just is a case by case kind of basis. And I think it's just really wise to never make like some assumption, you know? Right. So then the provider could be anybody. I mean, it could be an OB, it could be pediatrician, it could be a social worker, medical or, or mental health specialist is really, really it's on them on some level to, to ask a lot of questions. Absolutely. Because we know that like OBs and pediatricians kind of are the gatekeepers, right? Kind of during that immediate, during pregnancy and the immediate postpartum period to kind of catch moms in a nest and that, you know, who are more at risk for depression, who are suffering from depression or anxiety, and then to be, help them connect kind of through the next step to a provider, you know, a mental health provider. Mm -hmm. In terms of other supports, just in general supports for this community, um, what have you seen that's been beneficial? I guess, I mean, it's a little bit hard for me to answer that question again, because when I see people, right, they're probably pretty acculturated. So they're making use of the same services that other women who aren't, you know, Asian or Asian American are making use of too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, but I would say probably more community supports. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's important to have groups that are led by people who are culturally similar? I think that it can be, but I don't think all the time. I, again, I think that kind of cultural kind of similarity is something, I mean, I've certainly worked not just with moms, but certainly people before that wanted to kind of work with an Asian therapist. And so they came to see me, but just because I'm an Asian therapist doesn't mean, you know, that I know about their particular culture. So they could have been kind of disappointed or some people, it doesn't seem to kind of like make a difference at all. Mm -hmm. I guess that kind of comes down to an individual person, I would recommend, I guess, that healthcare providers work with their social work departments to find in the community culturally sensitive therapists, because some therapists, that's more of their specialty, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. So they're, they're already kind of ready yeah. to be aware. And then certainly, I mean, kind of looking at different ways that people can heal, maybe talk therapy, you know, isn't for everyone. That's one form of healing. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, therapists like here in the Bay Area who do talk therapy, but they kind of include a lot of other types of healing practices into their work. So I think sometimes that can make someone feel a little bit more comfortable. You know, maybe it's meditation, maybe it's breathing exercises, maybe it's some type of yoga that kind of serves as the catalyst to move into more talk therapy. Right. The other thing that I would say that I have read about, I haven't experienced this in my practice, but I've certainly read you know, about cases where a woman really was suffering and she had severe postpartum depression, but because of the family recommendation, she was taking herbs and she was going to acupuncture and she was doing all of these other holistic forms of treatment that just weren't touching the problem. And so she suffered longer mm-hmm. than she needed to. Mm-hmm. And so in those instances, I really think when we see that, and if she connects with a medical provider, that's a case where, you know, somebody it's absolutely needs to kind of jump in in a pretty assertive way. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. You know, the help that she needs, because I remember maybe it was like a 2020 mom project. This was several years ago, but I think a woman spoke here from the Bay area and she had really struggled, I think with postpartum psychosis, mm-hmm. but I think that, you know, it wasn't diagnosed and caught for quite some time. Right. And so there, there may also be different cultural understandings. One of what you're saying of how to treat someone who's feeling a certain way, but also how to make sense of it. And I think language, you know, I guess the other thing I would add is when we're working with, you know, a patient and they come from a more collectivistic family, it's really important to watch the language that you're using with this patient, Mm -hmm. you know? So 
it's really important to be inclusive of, of that collectivistic language. For example, instead of saying, oh, so when you take care of your baby or you're nursing your baby in the middle of the night, it means you're being a good mom. That's very, I would say, kind of individualistic. Uh-huh. We focused on mom and baby. A more collectivistic way maybe to say that is, so when you're feeding the baby in the middle of the night, you're doing this and you're breastfeeding, you know, you're being a good mom and you're being a good daughter. Uh-huh. Right. To kind of bring in, and I'm not like giving the best example of how that might come up. I'm giving a good example of how to incorporate it in your language in the way that you talk about things. And also because some parents, right? Some, if a parent is an immigrant, they have different ways of expressing affection. It might not be through the words, I love you. Right. It might be through action. And so kind of also on the flip side of the coin. So what do you think, you know, when mom wants to, when mom makes you these soups and she comes over, is that a way that she's saying that she loves you? Right. So I think that that's pretty important is to, that the provider watch the language that they're using. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests, too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. That's a that really, sense? yeah, absolutely. That's a really great point. Yeah. That, and that's sort of what I was like looking Maybe for. That's what you were trying to get at. I, yeah. 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 Thank you for, for helping me get it, uh, the, the, the words out and the question out and, and answer. Yeah. There's just all these nuances to, to other cultures that people who are born and raised here, even if they're from, like you were saying, from the same culture, but acculturated here, you know, maybe missing or not taking as important. And I guess the thing that sometimes I see oftentimes, you know, across the board, you know, not just in healthcare, I mean, but since we're talking about healthcare, I'll talk about it here, mm-hmm. is that people learn about diversity or cultural sensitivity and they learn it as information, but they don't know how to put it into practice in a sensitive way. So it merely stays as information and there's a lot of missteps. So, you know, the example I gave with language is certainly a good example. Like someone might have that information, but if you take the human out and it's still conveyed in a way that is othering, 
mm-hmm. it's not going to go anywhere. Right. So that's the other piece that I would add, because I've seen that certainly in healthcare, where someone might have gone to a cultural training, and then they kind of think all Asians are like this, or all you oh, gosh, yeah. um, African-American patients are like this. And so they might use language unconsciously that's totally insensitive. Well, I know that you people really prefer dot, dot, dot. That's, yes. that's you know. Right. <laughs> that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, like there's an effort there, but it's you're missing, you're missing it a bit. Um, and potentially creating a further divide. Absolutely. Creating a further divide and like shaming someone, you know, yeah. not intentionally, but shaming someone because of not recognizing that that information is about a person and it still needs to be taken into account. The best way, you know, to become more culturally aware and sensitive is through our being and through kind of doing things, not just in, you know, reading things off PowerPoint slides at a, at a training. Right. <laughs> Very good point. Yeah. Uh, but being sad but true. I mean, there's a lot of people, you know, there might be those types of trainings in healthcare and then they think that that's enough because they're told that that's enough, but mm-hmm. you know, it's not enough. Right. Right. And that's part of the reason why I think it's useful to have these discussions is that it brings to life some of this other stuff where you can get a little bit more in depth. It's not just on a slide and like, here's what you should do that. We're, we're getting into some of the nuances, but like, you know, in a half an hour, talk about this. There's no way we can touch on everything. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that there's a way even to do, you know, other kind of podcasts looking at a, maybe a smaller detail along kind of the cultural, what my colleague um, Bindu and I kind of call the kind of the cultural kaleidoscope that can give a little bit more specific kind of answers. Cause I feel like I'm being kind of broad stroke and I certainly yeah. don't be, you know, insensitive by saying this always happens. Certainly it doesn't always happen. Right. It's important to take into account so many factors, just like we do, like with, you know, with anyone. Absolutely. Well, I really thank you for your time and your perspective and giving some uh, some clarity to how we should be thinking for, in different perspectives in a different way to be helping Asian and a- Asian American mothers. And as we, you know, stated, maybe overstated, this is, you know, we're not speaking specifically about each different ethnicity within an Asian culture or each culture specifically, but really, you know, I think it's important to have the broad and general discussions to to raise awareness and just to have people thinking, you know, even if what they walk away from today is like, hmm, okay, so these are the things I kind of need to keep in my awareness and be sensitive about, then great. Then maybe that person that you're going to go and help and that mom you're going to go help really feels like heard and helped. Absolutely. I totally agree. I think that maybe, you know, as a way to convey information for somebody who hasn't thought about this. You know, it's such an important topic. Yeah. Okay. Now I just need a million hours so that I can get into every other, <laughs> every other very detailed discussion that I want to have. <laughs> but I thank you so much for your time and your knowledge. And you're so knowledgeable about so many other things. You do a lot of really important work in this field. And, and I just appreciate being able to talk with you. Thank you so much. And no, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Sure. By joining us today and listening, you're a part of the growing community of people who are aware and concerned for mothers and families during this beautiful and sometimes very difficult time of life. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this free podcast so that Mom and Mind can be found by moms, families, and providers who will benefit from hearing our talks. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, help is available. Please look for resources for help at momandmind.com where you will also find links and information from today's episode. Thank you for listening and being a part of the Mom and Mind community.
No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us 